Welcome to Awareness to Action, a podcast brought to you by the Northwestern Community Services Board Prevention Department. I'm your host, Casey, a social worker and prevention specialist here in Virginia. Our podcast goal is to promote wellness through conversation, connection, and action. We hope each episode will leave you feeling inspired and motivated to look for ways to get involved in your own community. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm joined today by Dr. Summer George. Summer is a licensed counselor who provides assessment, training, and supervision at the Virginia Child and Family Attachment Center and Secure Child Program in Charlottesville, Virginia. She received her PhD in counseling and supervision at James Madison University and teaches part-time in the Master's in Counseling program at Eastern Mennonite University. Though Summer's passion is for helping families become happier, healthier, and more connected, her insight and experience lends itself to all relationships. I say this throughout the episode, but Summer's perspective feels especially important as we prepare to re-enter our workplaces, schools, and communities post-COVID. It was truly such a joy to hear Summer's reflections on how we can more intentionally care for others and ourselves. We recorded this episode during the pandemic, so Summer is joining me via Zoom. Fair warning, you'll hear a few different noises in this one. Water running through pipes, microphones being tapped or moved around, and a few sweet kids running around in the background. I think it's a testament to how engaged we were in conversation that we noticed none of this while recording. Hopefully it won't distract you too much. Enjoy! All right. Welcome to the Awareness to Action podcast, Summer. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Let's start with you telling our guests about the work that you do now and how you got here. Yeah, absolutely. So I work with the Secure Child Program and the Virginia Child and Attachment Center in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, And we do attachment assessments, uh, education for parents and caregivers and social workers and counselors. Um, And we do a therapeutic intervention Uh, with families, uh, foster families, adoptive parents, and biologic families. Um, A lot of the families that we work with have kids who are struggling with emotional or behavioral challenges. And, um, you know, we, our goal is to help everybody uh, be more connected and have happier, healthier lives. Um, And I love the work that I do. I was originally a elementary school teacher and I taught middle school as well for a little while. And I've always loved working with kids, um, but I realized in my teaching that so many of the kids that, or so many of my students were struggling emotionally in different ways, or they had stuff going on in their families. And I started to feel a little um, discouraged at trying to teach math or reading or things like that when I knew there were so many you know, big things going on. Um, And so I started to have an interest in going into the field of counseling. Um, And around that time, my son was born and my husband and I um, sort of unofficially adopted a teenage daughter. So she came to live with us um, for a while. And so I ended up with a, a teenager and a toddler at the same time and decided to go back to school, (laughs) which I partly because I just really enjoy learning and going to school. And I think I needed something else to to do that um, kind of was in in a different realm. Um, But it was really driven by my interest in um, parenting and also 
thinking about what my students had been dealing with, but also um, what my daughter was going through at the time with just a lot of her emotions and dealing with some stuff from her past. So I got really interested in the field of attachment and um, did my master's at EMU in Harrisonburg. And uh, in that process, uh, started looking for uh, somewhere that I could work that would allow me to work with families and children um, and really fostering like better relationships. That was the thing that I was really interested in. Um, so I was really fortunate to find that connection in uh, Charlottesville. And I started working there, doing assessments, working as a therapist, learning more, and then um, eventually went back to school to get my PhD in counseling and supervision and have continued to do this work that I love for all these years. And now I continue to do evaluations and I supervise therapists at our organization and um, help coordinate the program. And then I also teach um, part-time at EMU's master's in counseling program. So what I'm hearing is that you're never busy. There's not a lot on your plate. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. As I'm, as I'm talking, I'm like, wow, those are a lot of things to fit in. I love all of them, but yes, sometimes it's a lot. Yeah. Um, I think it's really beautiful to hear you speak about what drew you to the work that you do now, but also the timing of it, how special that you entered into this work with families at a time when you were really starting your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, it was um, such a drive for my curiosity, I guess. And just as I was trying to figure out, like, how do I respond to my toddler when he's having a meltdown? And, um, you know, how do I deal with my teenager who's wanting to die? And, you know, some really serious stuff. And it, it felt overwhelming to me at times. But I also, the more I started to like, read and study and talk with people, the more I started to realize like there's, there's a lot of good stuff out there and there's hope. And most of it really um, is, it makes sense. Like it's practical and it's real. And if I make some of these um, adjustments or changes or different ways of looking at things, um, it helps us all feel better. Yeah, absolutely. So your work is really focused on the relationship between parent or caretaker and child. I'd love to talk first about the stigma around seeking support mm. in that relationship of parent or caretaker and child. Yes, absolutely. I think there's so much pressure um, in our society to be perfect parents, to get it all right. Um, you know, and when things aren't going well or our children are struggling, uh, there's this sort of sense of failure. Um, and I, I, I experience that at times. I see parents... Um, that I work with and even friends feeling that sense of failure if my child's not thriving or doing well, or if I don't know what to do. Um, and nobody wants to admit that they can't do this thing, but in reality, it's hard work. Like being a parent is one of the hardest things um, that we do. And, and then some of the families that we work with, um, particularly foster and adoptive families have, have raised children already fairly successfully. And then they have a foster adopted child who, they don't know how to help them. And that can feel overwhelming. Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely a stigma there. Um, and part of what we do is um, take the time to really listen to parents and to their experience and to validate their strengths, because most of them are working so hard and doing so much um, to try and help their kids. And I think 
um, one of the things that they do is is reaching out for help. And that in itself is sort of displaying that level of commitment to I'm going to do whatever it takes to get the help that I need. I'm so glad you talk about understanding the parent's experience, because I imagine that in work that really focuses on the child is I could see the parent's experience being forgotten or or not making enough space for that experience. So I imagine that's really part of addressing the family as a unit is offering space for each individual. I'm not articulating that well, but (laughs) well, actually that's absolutely true. And, you know, the way we see it is that parents are the most important person um, in their child's life and their experience is valid. And um, we want the parent or the caregiver to know how important they are and how much their kids love them and need them. And so really everybody's experience in the family matters um, and everybody impacts, you know, each other. Um, so we really help parents think about their own experience, their own feelings and needs, um, while also considering what their child's experience is and what they need. And I, I see that by giving that um, honor and valuing like each person's experience, um, it, it kind of creates some space and then everyone is able to sort of open up and understand each other a little better. Um, we really want the parents to feel um, and to be heard and sort of um, respected in whatever they are going through. Um, and a lot of parents, by the time we work with them, have not only struggled at home uh, with their child being, you know, yelled at, uh, kicked, um, you know, threatened um, sometimes by their child, um, but also blamed by outsiders who don't understand other people, uh, friends or family, community members who um, they feel some sort of judgment. So our starting point is always um, inviting them to tell us their story. Uh, What is it like for them? Um, And by honoring their experience, it makes it easier than I think for them to kind of open up and also hear more about what their child is, is going through. It's amazing how carefully and gently a wall can come down when we just offer like a little bit of space to hear what somebody wants to share, what they need to share, and maybe haven't had the chance to share before. Right. Oh, that's so true. Yes. Um, I'm wondering how, from your perspective, how community members outside of the home can Mm. support the fostering of secure relationships, Mm -hmm. because not everybody who's listening is a parent. Absolutely. That is a really good question. And I think that, you know, families are under a lot of stress these days. There's so much um, pressure to achieve, to get ahead, to juggle um, so many different things. And then all the challenges that are coming come just within our society with things like poverty or uh, racism or lack of access to mental health services. Um, And so I think that you know, there are both sort of small scale things and then larger scale things that um, that people can do. And I think, you know, agencies like yours sort of help to fill in the gap and the awareness that's being brought even through this podcast of um, the needs of these families is really important. Um, and then on a smaller scale, though, I think just the being willing to hear and listen uh, to what people are going through and looking for ways to support rather than uh, to judge um, you know, early intervention is such a big thing in, in this field. And I think helping 
to support biologic families um, who who have a lot of stressors and you know helping thing with things like employment or housing access again to mental health care um, rather than waiting till things are kind of falling apart and there's some big crisis um, is really important. But then again, on, on just in those interactions to be sure that we are approaching people with respect and support um, because I think as and, and I see this over and over again, as we show the sort of love and support and kindness and space that people need, then they are better able to do that um, for their children. And so I think that's really a great starting point. I really appreciate you sharing that because when I asked that question, I was expecting an answer related to directly supporting the children, but I like that shift in perspective of supporting a parent is supporting a child and we're given, I think, much more opportunity to be non-judgmental and empathetic and kind toward parents in our lives than children a lot of times. And even like at the grocery store, we're Mm -hmm. given opportunities for that. And so I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Along the lines of shifting perspectives the work that you do each day is really about addressing the roots of of the family of an issue mm-hmm. rather than applying a band-aid mm-hmm. so can you tell us more about really what that means in your work yeah for sure you know i think that as children um, grow and develop and interact with um, the important people in their lives Um, certain patterns develop over time within the brain and within the nervous system and the body um, that become familiar and are the only thing often that that child knows and experiences. And so the tendency that we have to want to kind of quickly make changes that um, in the child's behavior um, or emotions uh, we find is often not super successful. And particularly with kids who have experienced a lot of hardship, a lot of stress or trauma or um, significant loss that um, in order to make lasting change, it, it requires time and it requires um, looking sort of beneath the surface. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the graphic before where there's like an iceberg above the water and you know the behaviors, the child's behaviors are kind of like the little piece that's poking up above the water, but then down beneath that, beneath the surface, there's so much more. And so we kind of think about it that way. There's a lot of needs that aren't necessarily always evident. And part of our work is to, um, to help parents sort of see past the what we sometimes call the debris, the stuff that's on the surface, the negative behavior, um, or we also call the miscues because they're kind of pointing away from the actual need, and that to help that we we help parents notice and see the desire underneath of that for connection and safety and and support. Um, and then how to meet those needs, which then leads to more confidence, better behavior, better emotion regulation, more motivation. And then um, within that, everybody starts to feel better. And again, it takes time to get there and it takes a lot of small moments of repetition and change. Um, But we see that it, it seems to create this sort of trajectory toward health and toward growth and um, sometimes when 
when approaches are just aimed at fixing a behavior, um, there can be a lot of um, the child's ability to respond to that can vary quite a bit. And especially for, like I said, the kids who've had this kind of history. So their response to maybe um, whether it be consequences or a sticker chart um, or all those things that might work for some kids um, around certain behaviors, for a lot of the kids we see, it just creates more upsets and more stress for the parents and then everybody struggles. So we really work to say, let's let's get past that. Let's look what's underneath. Let's look what's behind this and what's the real need here. And let's go straight for that. I've never heard the term miscues before. That's mm-hmm. so interesting because behavior behavior tells us so much, but yeah, at that surface level, I think a lot of times we are, we're really not (laughs) hearing or seeing what the behavior is actually telling us. We're, we're quick to say, oh, I know, I know why they're doing that, but that's often not the case. You know, and this is something that all of us do from time to time, this idea of of miscuing um, versus more direct cueing where we might ask for what we need or say, you know, how we're feeling. Um, Even we as adults will miscue in our close relationships um, at times by saying, you know, someone says, how are you? You might say, I'm fine. Or um, I don't need anything. And sometimes it comes with a little edge to it. Um, It's, and if the other person takes that at face value, then our need doesn't get met, but our frustration and resentment can rise. Um, And so we see this with kids a lot, especially kids who haven't had a lot of their needs, emotional needs met in the early years. Um, They don't expect their needs to get met. They don't know how to communicate those things directly. And so a lot of their communication is is miscuing. It's giving the impression of, I don't want you, I don't need you. Um, And if the parent takes that at face value, then nobody's Nobody comes away from that interaction feeling any better. Um, so part of the work is, yeah, to kind of see beyond that and and understand what what's the real need here, um, and how can I how can I address that? How can I meet that? What I'm hearing is that as an adult, that's how we can best care for a child, but also for ourselves. Mm-hmm. To be honest, and to yes. ch- to try and not miscue yes. and to say, actually, I'm not okay, or mm-hmm. actually, I. I could, you know, use your help with this. Yes. But that's hard. That's a brave thing. It is a brave thing. And it is a hard thing that takes time and practice and, and encouragement often. And that's what we see too. When we work with say a couple who has a child, they're learning about miscues. They start having these aha moments of, oh yeah, like we do this with each other. And then like noticing it when it's happening and saying, okay, that was a miscue. Um, And it really can start to make a difference when we, number one, recognize it, you know, in our partner and our child, but also in ourself and start to, to learn to be a little more um, vulnerable, maybe, and a little more direct about our own needs. And, and again, in the work that we do, that's part of the goal. Like we want everyone to be able to acknowledge that we all have that need for connection and, um, for other people to see us and to know us and um, so that so we can have that sort of give and take and, and um, connection in the relationship. And it, it almost always is better for us when we are honest about our needs, but still, still we avoid doing that. But it's like, yes, yep. you know, there's positive reinforcement for it, but still. 
It's still hard to do. It's still, it still requires a, a certain level of vulnerability, but also the expectation that the other person can hear and receive it with kindness and with, um, in some way, an effort to meet that need. And I think that sometimes what's so hard to do is um, to build that. Like it takes time to trust that that person um, really does have my best interest at heart. And if I do express this, that they'll understand and they'll be here for me. Um, and and that never is gonna happen every single time, um, but enough of the time that it can start to be something we can sort of trust and, and lean on. And, and again, that's the same thing we would want for our children as well. Absolutely. That just makes me wanna be more loving in all of my relationships. <laughs> yes. um, on the topic of healthier relationships, mm-hmm. I'd love for you to share some of your thoughts as you just have on how we can build those mm-hmm. better relationships because it feels especially important as we soon leave this time of COVID mm-hmm. and start either engaging with people in new ways or re-engaging with our families and our friends and our coworkers after a really strange year. It's mm-hmm. it's just going to be complicated. Yes. Yeah. So anything you can offer us would be sure. great. <laughs> Wow, I'm trying to think of where to start, but I think, I mean, what we just talked about feels feels really um, important to me. But I think on top of that is during during this pandemic time, you know, some of us have had more time with those that are close to us, and some of us have had less time. But it's also easy to lose sort of the quality of those moments. Um, and I think one thing I would suggest is finding ways to be really intentional about being together and um, carving out time where there's not a particular agenda. So, you know, time to have fun together, um, time to share about, you know, our own selves and to hear the other person, um, you know, with our children setting aside time where there's, you know, one-on-one interaction. Um, And it, it doesn't have to, you know, be some huge thing. It can just be like little moments of time to connect and to really listen. Um, and and I think in particular with our kids, times where uh, we we don't have to teach them anything, we don't have to have a goal in mind. That it's more about just being together. And and along with that, something that is so key as well when I think about like relationships and security. And I've experienced this with my own kids and in my own life that, you know, we're gonna, we're not going to get it right all the time. And we have moments of like um, mismatch or where we're not getting each other or where we're frustrated or angry. And those are all normal kinds of moments. Um, but one of the key things is to be able to come back together and have a moment of repair. And so I've seen this over and over be such an empowerful experience that if we can, um, reconnect emotionally after a disruption. And I think probably all of us during this pandemic, because of all the stress that's come with it, we're all having these moments of frustration and overwhelm and stress, and it affects our relationships. But if, if we can then come back together afterward and you know look each other in the eye, um, say, I love you, I'm here with you, uh, I'm sorry if that's the appropriate thing, um, those kinds of moments of repair are so strengthening uh, in a relationship. I'm, I'm actually reading a book right now called The Power of Discord uh, by Ed Tronic and Claudia Gold. It's excellent. And it really um, 
focuses on this idea of the um, how natural it is to have moments of rupture and repair. And um, so that would be one thing I would say, I think, especially coming out of this pandemic is to make sure to have those moments of reconnection after the difficult ones come. Again, something that requires some bravery, but ultimately leads to good. I just think of how easy it is Mm -hmm. when we mess up to shrink away and to pull back into ourselves. Mm -hmm. But you're right. There's you, I mean, you add dimensions to a relationship when you're able yeah. to, to repair after yeah. a challenging moment. And yeah, that feels it, like really important advice to carry. And it, creates, this it creates such a strength, I think, mm-hmm. uh, in any relationship when that happens. Um, and I, a lot of times something that, that, that we see with families who are having these like really big upsets with their, the kiddos are having big meltdowns. Um, sometimes it seems like the very best thing is just to like, once it's over, like we don't talk about it, just move on, pretend like everything's fine. We act normal. And, um, while I think for many people, that's kind of the best that they can do in that moment. Um, what I would encourage people to do is to take it just one step further. And instead of saying, we're just going to pretend like everything's fine, take even just a couple moments to, to do that reconnecting um, because the kind of moving on, pretending things are fine when they've not been fine um, can leave everybody feeling a little unsettled. And um, that moment of, of talking briefly and reconnecting can allow everyone's uh, nervous system to sort of settle down and um, the sense of safety and moving forward um, is increased. Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> Hearing you talk that through feels like to, to move forward without acknowledging it and acting like everything's fine is kind of dishonest if mm-hmm. everything's not fine. And I think we always feel more settled when yeah. we're being truthful with ourselves and the people we love. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we can leave those experiences otherwise feeling kind of confused and unsure. Um, and, and one of the things, again, coming back to the parent-child relationship that we want um, the the child to start to experience is that when there is some sort of disruption, I can anticipate that we will get past it, that it'll get better, that you're not going to stop loving me, that you're not going to, you know, send me away, that it's not all over. Um, but that I will anticipate that the repairs can be made and relationships can, um, weather these difficult moments. And that sort of, creates sort of an internal structure in the child that expects it. And then as that child grows up able to, um, to do those things as well. Yeah. And how incredible for us as adults to be able to model that, mm-hmm. in our, you know, peer to peer relationships, yes. relationships with young people. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That just feels so important to me <laughs> because I, I mean, if we're, if we're modeling that kind of vulnerability and that trust and that assurance that we can overcome this, then as you said, the child is then equipped to grow up and do that in their relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And they start to just, they start to know what it feels like and expect it. And um, that's better for everybody. Yeah. I've heard you say that families need to share enjoy, and delight which yes. hello are two of the greatest things ever. Yes. Um, I would just love for you to speak more about mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up. And um, I, 
joy and delight are really so foundational to building any relationship. Um, and, you know, often for parents who have an infant, they share lots of moments of gazing in each other's eyes and, you know, trying to make their child laugh and then smiling and laughing in return. And um, not everybody gets a chance to have those experiences though in infancy, but it doesn't matter at what age, like those moments are so important. And one of the things that I always tell people is it doesn't need to be like some big birthday party or trip to Disneyland or something really huge to share joy and delight. Like it really can be just those tiny moments throughout the day. Like, you know, um, when you, when your child walks in the door after school and your face lights up when you see them, or, um, you know, when your child does something funny and you both laugh together or you make a silly joke. Um, I was, I was sitting here earlier working and I could hear, um, my daughter and her cousin and my mom in the other room, they're doing school together. And um, they were telling just the silliest, corniest jokes that I wanted to roll my eyes at, but they were laughing so hard. And I was thinking about just like, it's such a small moment, but the shared moment of laughter, even if it's about something ridiculously silly, um, is such a bonding experience. And I think especially now we need that so much because we've had a lot of hard times over this last year um, and so much loss and so much stress um, in the world globally, in this country. And then just personally, everybody's, I think, feeling the weight of all that. Uh, so how much more important those little moments of laughter, delight, and joy, they really keep us going. And, and especially too, for families who's children have a lot of difficulties in their behavior, that it's easy for everything to feel exhausting and hard and like a battle. And I think what sometimes the first thing to go is those moments of fun and delight, because it's just so much work for everybody. Um, and so sometimes before anything else, we will encourage parents to just find some moments to add, little moments of connection and delight in the day um, before making any other changes, because those moments kind of give us courage to keep going and to continue to invest our time and energy in a relationship. And that's just so important. Yeah. And they stick with us. Like I, yes, so many of those small, tiny moments become like <laughs> jokes or memories that you, yes. 20, like 20 years later, I can think of things that I, I used to always mispronounce <laughs> words or I would get phrases or sayings really wrong. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And still all these years later, my parents will jokingly use those yes. in, in yes. our conversations. And it's still funny. And those right, moments were right. so small. And you get to enjoy it over and over again. But yeah. then there's also like this sort of shared knowledge and it's a bonding thing to have that with other people. Um, absolutely. Yes. The combination of joy and delight, that is something that we need is just really lovely to me. <laughs> you know, I, I want to add one other thing as I'm thinking about this as well. You know, we we uh, video record um, part of our assessment. It's an observation of just parent-child interaction. And one of the first things that we do, and this is something that we like share with the parents as part of the therapeutic process, but we will look for moments in that video clip where there's just, even if it's just the tiniest moment of joy or delight and share those as a, as a starting point. And then um, our hope is to take 
what, however, like I said, however small those moments might be, and sometimes they're pretty small, um, and just expand them a little bit and say, like, next time, let's, you know, try to hold that eye contact a little longer. Um, look at that smile full on and see what it feels like, you know, when you let it soak in. Um, or whatever it might be, but taking like the tiniest moments and seeing if we can just make them a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And that um, has such a ripple effect on, on everything else really. And that really connects to what you were saying earlier of like the progress and the growth in these relationships is found in these tiny little bits yes. of- <laughs> It's those little moments, yes. And sometimes yeah. those little tiny moments, um, especially over time, are really what make the biggest impact. So this is a huge question, but if you could pick some highlights, what are some of the lessons you've learned from the families you've worked with? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it is a big question and I can think of a lot of things. Probably the thing that stands out the most to me right now is thinking just about how how much all these parents um, love their children and how hard they're working to do all that they can. Um, and then on top of that, how important it is that we really listen to each other. And so for me coming into a family system, how important it is for me to really hear um, what each person is going through. And this ties into what we said earlier. I think I've really learned not to go in with too many of my own ideas, but to really listen to what their experience is first. Um, and then um, really honor the amount of effort that, that parents are putting in for their kids, the amount that they are um, doing from day to day to try and make their children's lives better than theirs were often. Um, yeah, and I am, yeah, I'm thinking about several families that I have uh, directly worked with as well. And I think that I come away from that. Some of the things that they have said to me is um, having someone else who sees them and sees what they're going through um, has made a huge difference. Um, the, the not feeling so alone in it. And I think that that's the other thing that I've learned is how important it is that we not feel all alone in whatever struggle it might be. Um, so, you know, in some level, I'm there to help them see that for their child, but I feel like I learn that over and over again as I have these conversations with the parents. That's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, changing gears a little bit, I know you are very committed to being a lifelong learner and that that's something that you truly value and love. I yes, mean, we, that's evident. Mm -hmm. um, and you're also involved in the education of future professionals. So I feel like you're extra qualified to answer this. Um, and I'm just wondering what are some resources that you would share with people who are wanting to learn more about some of what yeah. we've talked about? So uh, this is just such a, um, I love this question and I'm always, I'm never sure where to start. Um, so I'll share a couple things that just have come to my mind. Um, and um, one of those is I, I love to read. So there's so many, you know, books out there that could 
be helpful. And a starting point, just I'm going to share a couple of those. Um, one is uh, the book Becoming Attached by Robert Karen. And that's just if, if you're interested in learning more about attachment and how it works and how relationships form, um, it's a great starting point. Um, another really great book, and you're probably familiar um, with Dan Siegel and some of his work, but Parenting from the Inside Out is a really great one um, to learn more about a lot of the things we've talked about here today. Um, a fairly recent book is called The Six Needs of Every Child um, by Jeffrey Ulrich. So that's another. And then um, if you're someone who likes to listen to podcasts, and if you're listening to this one, you probably are, um, there is a podcast called Attachment Theory in Action. And there's um, just a lot of great episodes on there of um, where they're talking with professionals that uh, work from this particular perspective. Um, and that's another great place to start. Um, as far as you know, thinking specifically about um, our area here in Virginia, I would say you know if anyone is interested in learning more about attachment, um, whether whether you are a counselor, social worker, caseworker, um, or whether you're a parent, I um, I'd love to hear from you. Um, we are in the process of kind of revamping our website uh, right now, um, but you can certainly contact us that way as well. Um, we're, we're in the process of starting some groups um, that are um, called Connect Parent Groups. It's an evidence-based attachment uh, group for um, parents of older children and teens. And so we'll be running some of those. So that's an, another um, option if people are interested in that sort of thing. We do some parent education and consultation as well. Um, so again, feel free to reach out to us um, and we can talk those things through. That's really exciting that you're doing groups. I love any type of group learning. <laughs> yes. So I'm good. I'm really excited about about getting these groups started. Um, we were we were trained uh, through um, well this is a longer story, but the Annie Casey Foundation was paying for people to get trained in this connect uh, group. And I was fortunate enough to, to do the training right before the pandemic, um, was excited about getting a group started and then everything went virtual and all of it got put on pause. Um, but one of the things I loved about it is that it lined up so well with the work that we were already doing as an individual intervention. And it just kind of provided another way to reach maybe more people. Um, so we're finally kind of coming back around to trying to get that put together and started soon. And very excited about the possibilities there. While we're talking about continued learning, I would just love to, I mean, I know that we have a lot of professionals who listen to this podcast and I just love for you to speak to what it means to you to be a lifelong learner and why that's something that you prioritize and value so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I will say that for me, continuing to learn things as part of what um, gives me energy and um, enthusiasm and, and this field in particular, the attachment work, the, um, learning about relationships and development um, and both the impact of trauma, but also how the healing takes place. It, I never get tired of it and there's always more to learn. And that's the thing that I love so much is that um, no matter how much I might uh, know about it, there's always something more to learn. And I'm, I'm 
always um, finding something new in my reading or conversations at work that I can then share with therapists that I'm working with or other parents or just apply to myself as a parent in my own life. And, and I think that's what I love being able to take all this, um, these ideas and this information and then figure out like, what does that look like? And how does it translate into real life? And how does it make a difference? And that's, um, that's something that really keeps me going. And, and part of the fun in that too, is talking with other professionals who are also interested in learning. And those conversations are always um, just so helpful in my own growth and my own understanding as well. I think that inter really interdisciplinary collaboration is such a gift. I, I am very fortunate to work alongside some really incredible people. And it's just always so exciting to me yes. because I'm like, wow, look at what you guys are doing. I want to learn that. Or I want to know how to do that yes. too, or I'm going to get better at that. And yeah, such a gift. And if uh, for people who aren't in that kind of setting where maybe, maybe they're not feeling so inspired by the people they're working with, we have so many great resources like groups and yes. books and, you know, virtual trainings. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's so much fun to talk to other professionals and to talk to other people who care a lot about um, about people and maybe are just coming at it from a different perspective. And there's so much we can learn from each other. So Summer, we usually close the podcast with the question of what does the process of awareness to action mean to you? And you a little mm -hmm. bit just spoke to that in um, talking about what it means to be a lifelong learner, but anything anything to add about that process? The, the other thing that comes to mind is I, um, one of the things that I've enjoyed studying and um, have written some about is the idea of reflective functioning. So the capacity to um, kind of make connections between our experiences and our thoughts and our feelings and behaviors, both for ourselves, but also in others. And just how important it is for us to cultivate that kind of um, awareness. And one of the things we know in the field of attachment is that when people have more of the reflective capacity, um, children tend to be more secure in those relationships. And which kind of makes sense. That's one of those things that the awareness of like how emotion and experience impact behaviors can help to um, impact it impacts how we interact then as as a result so one of the things that i think about with that question of awareness to action is also about the um, becoming aware of ourselves and how those pieces fit together um, and then taking the time to reflect on other people's experience and how you know the behavior that we see is often connected to an emotion and connected to an experience and so on. And by doing that, it creates more um, empathy and understanding that allows us to respond in ways that create connection, um, as well as to make those repairs that are so important after a disruption. So that's something I try to really incorporate in, in my own life, both personally and professionally, um, but then also um, encourage when I'm working with um, therapists or parents to um, slow down, take the time to process those kinds of things, because it really can make a difference um, in our lives and, and the lives of others. I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> that was such a beautiful answer. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, Summer, I'm 
so grateful that you were here today and willing to chat about all of this, um, this conversation about connection and, and how to really invest in our ourselves and our relationships just feels mm -hmm. so timely as we stand on this precipice of hopefully re-entering a world, yes. you know, that's a little bit more familiar than this COVID time has mm -hmm. been. So thank you for sharing your experience and your heart with us. Thank you, Casey. It's been wonderful to be here. And um, I love talking about all these topics, as you can probably tell, but it's fun talking <laughs> with you about them because I feel your energy and, and interest. And um, yeah, I, I think that relationships are so um, critical to like to our entire life experience. And um, so I'm grateful to have a chance to, to talk with you and also to your listeners about this topic. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Awareness to Action so you can keep up to date with all of our future episodes. We'll see you next time.